Hey, this is Season 2, Episode 3 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting, and enjoying a cup of coffee, or whatever you're doing, I'm glad you're here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Brewcast. Uh, I'm Eric Letterman, and I'm joined today by Tommy Airy, a retired high school teacher and once upon a time evangelical pastor. He is the co-editor of RadicalDiscipleship.net, a blog focused on telling stories about what is happening on the ground among faith communities yearning for a world defined by peace. It's a great, great website. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, he's had articles published in the Christian Century, Sojourners Magazine, The Mennonite, and a whole bunch of other publications. He's also the author of a book, Descending Like a Dove, Adventures in Decolonizing Evangelical Christianity. It was published in 2018, and it chronicles the story of Tommy's exodus out of evangelical Christianity and into, quote, something more. Tommy, welcome to the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Oh, it's so good to be here with you, Eric. You had me at Brewcast. <laughs> yeah, I, Brewcast. I, drink, I drink I drink coffee and beer every day. Well, most every day. And yeah. Uh, well, all the beer I'm stuff fueled. was already kind of taken. So I couldn't, I was like, all right, I'm gonna go with coffee. But I like coffee. So, um, so I have actually been reading your book. Um, and, and granted I'm, I'm, as we've talked before, I'm definitely on the on the more progressive evangelical side, and I kind of started there. I, I, you you and I both grew up in Orange County. We found out that we went to the same high school. Uh, I think only a year or two apart. You actually taught at our old high school uh, mm-hmm. with our mutual friend, uh, Doctor James Corbett. Uh, he was my journalism professor teacher actually when I was on the paper, and I also TA'd for one of his uh, AP uh, history classes. Mm-hmm. Um. But so as an evangelical raised in Orange County, I was raised in a a much more sort of big tent, moderate mainline church in San Juan Capistrano. Um, And then you became a pastor yourself. So you went to Saddleback under uh, Rick Warren, and then you started your own church, uh, sort of a satellite or a sister church of, of, of Saddleback. And then you started to kind of see, if I can use my own words here, you sort of started to see cracks in the armor of the evangelical world. Um, you started to see things just weren't consistent. Things weren't, things weren't jiving. And so first, let me say that I think there are cracks all over the various camps of the Christian expression, (laughs) including liberalism and progressive, uh, progressivism. Um, but what I resonated with in your story is this search for a deeper, more holistic and more complicated understanding of Christianity. And in fact, in your introduction, you write that you are, quote, convinced that authentic Christianity is not a belief system or an ideology. It is a consciousness, critical, contemplative and compassionate. I love those words. Part of the, I think the ethos of what I'm trying to do here with faith and coffee is listening to people's personal stories and talk about how are they, how have they grown in their faith? How have they changed? And, and to be critical of the Christian faith as it's expressed, especially here in the West, in the United States. So um, I realize you do tell much of your story in your book, and I don't want to steal from that because I really want people to read this book. I think it has a lot, uh, even though it's geared toward evangelicals who are maybe uh, not, 
they're starting to see some of the inconsistencies as well, or people who are starting to think about or are leaving evangelical, the evangelical conservative world. Um, but as I told you before, I, I think this has a lot to say to people on the left as well. I think it's a powerful, powerful book. Um, and it really calls, I think, liberals who think they're changing the world. I think it calls them to the carpet, too, to be much more consistent in their in their faith, in their and 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 in the ways they go about in partnering and building relationships and things like that. So, tell us the story, somewhat in summary. How did you get to where you are now in this incredible journey that you've been on? Yeah, well, thanks so much, Eric. It, it means uh, so much to me. I'm honored that you uh, read some of the book and um, and. I'm almost and, halfway through. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't no. come till a couple of weeks ago and I've been like trying to get to it. <laughs> yeah. And now it means the world to me. Um, so thanks so much for having me on and, and, um, and asking me these questions. I, I, you know, my faith journey starts, um, as I get into in the book, um, back in the, the mid eighties, my mom got a job at the, the private Christian school in San Juan Capistrano. Um, and, uh, uh, private fundamentalist white evangelical school is that the uh, one right on the bend of del obispo exactly yeah okay yeah, i know yeah. what you're talking about yeah, yeah. capo valley christian Ca school yeah capo valley i was trying to remember there yeah um and so that's where i i was in a, a public school before then fourth grade you know came to jesus invited jesus into my heart as my personal lord and savior um and really became compelled um you know we had our daily bible readings and um, and, and was really energized by Christian faith, um, starting then through junior high, went to youth group, a uh, little Bible church in San Juan Capistrano, um, through high school and, and into college, um, involved in, in different church and parachurch, uh, organizations. And, um, you know, and that's like, right through the Reagan revolution, um, into, to the first George Bush years, um, and, um, and through college into early adulthood. Um, and, uh, and, and really what that faith meant, uh, was, was that, um, I had a personal relationship with Jesus. I, you know, we, we had this really strong understanding that it was a, a relationship and not a religion. Uh, it was a, um, a relationship based on grace and uh and and not on works and and really at the very center of it all was it was all about uh this salvation narrative that we were going to go to heaven when we died um and that that, that either that was going to happen first or that jesus would return and uh, we would be raptured and, and we would be saved from this world uh, that we were not of this world and uh, and that we were guaranteed eternal salvation salvation uh, in in heaven or in the New Jerusalem or whatever that looked like. That whole faith narrative was was deeply connected uh, to the Republican Party and to Republican politics, to um, to this idea of pro life being you know uh, all about abortion, and uh, and eventually the the connection to um, to same-sex marriage and, you know, um, just protecting traditional marriage and that whole narrative as well. And so, so I, I was all in, um, my faith meant, uh, so much to me. It was kind of the center of my universe. And, um, and when I turned when in my late twenties, as you said, I, you know, I was, I was really connected at Saddleback church 
And um, I was the advisor for Fellowship of Christian Athletes on campus at the public high school where I was teaching and coaching. And, um, our, and our, our alma mater, yeah. Modern go Cougars. Go Cougars. And, um, and, and connected to a really good group of guys from Saddleback, you know, uh, it was our small group and, um, the, the college pastor there, Aaron Gutridge, who, who had a, a huge impact on my life, uh, was planting a new church, um, in the area. And, uh, it was a daughter church of Saddleback. And it was one of these kind of, um, I, I would call it like a, like a pseudo emerging church, you know, uh, it was younger, it was hipper. It was, it had, it had good rock, um, music, worship music, um, kind of relatable sermons. And, what was the name uh, of it? It was called Sacred. Sacred. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, so I was, um, you know, like right after two, uh, two, right, right after nine 11 in 2001, we planted the church. I was an associate pastor there and also, uh, the athletic director and, and coach and teacher at the high school. And I was single, I wasn't dating anybody at the time. I was, you know, um, either working or doing ministry for 80 hours a week and, 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 and loving it. Um, and, and it was at that time, uh, about a year or two into that project where I really started to, um, to have, have questions about my faith. Um, a lot of those questions were arising from, from the classroom itself, from, from some of my students who were coming out to me as gay and lesbian, uh, students who were coming out to me as undocumented, um, and students being real and vulnerable. And those, those issues, um, as it turns out, were like real people. And, um, and, and at the same time, living in South Orange County, as you know, Eric, um, there was this, this, uh, cognitive dissonance for me that, that like, I was a part of this white evangelical movement um, that believed in a God of love, a God of compassion, uh, a God of uh, servant leadership and sacrifice and self-donating love. And I, the, the people that I was congregating with, the people that I was connecting with um, at uh, uh, in Bible studies at churches, the, the parents that I was building relationships with as a teacher and as an athletic director who were Christian, I became less and less compelled by their life. Um, uh, there, there was, um, and, and today I connected to, to what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King named in, in 1967 as the giant triplets of evil. Um, and, and in that speech at Riverside church in New York called the beyond Vietnam speech, he named racism, materialism, and militarism, uh, as the giant triplets of evil at the core of the American empire. And, and that to me, like, like over the, over the course of the last 20 years in, in exiting evangelicalism, that those are counterfeit gods, or I would call demons or unclean spirits that, that possess Amer the American people. Um, and, and particularly I'm interested in having the conversation around white Christians, um, being, being far more, um, connected to the giant triplets of evil than anything in the Bible. And, and yeah. it's what we're see what we've seen play out. Like that's the religion. 
and, it, and he it, and he took a lot of hits for that because they said stick to theology, leave the politics out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the things that I, I, I read in your book is about Christianity is political, but you can't be Christian without being political. Right. And that's is that right. something that in, in the evangelical world, it's sort of this don't do it, but do it. Right. That's right. Mix. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we're not going to be political, but we're going to get involved in these issues. Yeah. And they use language uh, uh, like these are not political issues. These are biblical issues. Yeah. And in biblical issues, specifically around abortion and gay marriage, um, and now religious liberty is one of them, and and war, they just and, and war. they justify war, absolutely, um, yeah, and and so uh, so yeah, it's this really tricky thing. Whereas whereas I want to I want to say okay yeah we can we can talk about biblical issues, um, but let's talk about the the more than one thousand passages in the Bible that have to do with poverty. Um, and, uh, and, and, and being the people of God who, who, who are people who, who do actually, you know, have a war on poverty and, uh, and, and redistribute our wealth and, and that type of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, um, uh, 2003, 2004, I, I'm really wrestling with these things and these theological notions that are embedded in white evangelicalism, uh, of, if you are not a Christian, you're going to hell when you die. Um, issues around sexuality, issues around gender. Uh, I was starting to see that, that, okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that this church Saddleback church, the second largest church in North America had no women, uh, on their board of elders. Uh, they, they had a, a very strict policy that no women could preach there. You know, these, these are the things that started to like open my eyes, um, uh, up to, to some serious concern. Um, and it was a lot of these questions when, when, uh, my wife partner, Lindsay and I started to date, uh, in 2004, like, you know, we, we were, she was going to Biola. Um, she was, uh, she was a hardcore fundamentalist that came, you know, uh, we, we got into these, you know, long conversations. We were reading Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and, and a whole bunch of other authors like N.T. Wright and others and, and just having these beautiful conversations and that turned into arguments sometimes. And, um, and eventually when we got married in 2005, uh, you know, we say that we went to, uh, we started to go to Fuller Seminary uh, for our honeymoon and, uh, and made that commute up to Pasadena two or three times a week. Um, and, uh, and, and we went because we had all these questions. Like we, we went because we were so like shaped by just this one Christian understanding, white evangelicalism, fundamentalism, like that, that's all we knew. Um, and, and even then, like, um, being shaped by by white supremacy being shaped by um by patriarchy and and the american empire and in such powerful ways like i couldn't even make the connection that that uh that dr king was a christian right hmm. i mean that was that christianity i i, I don't know because um, you saw him more as a political figure than a religious figure is that what you're saying? that's right yeah and i think that that is embedded as- into as many people do, I think today, they forget right. that it's the Reverend doctor. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Fuller was, was huge for us. It was the perfect place at the perfect time for us to get kind of a big tent evangelical 
training. And wasn't that the time about the time when Fuller Seminary, which is a traditional conservative evangelical mm-hmm. seminary, That's right. they were really starting to sort of spread their theological wings, so to speak, in the sense of trying to become, they wanted to become more of a diverse center for theology. And they were bringing in people from different, you know, maybe not the radical left, but they were bringing people in from different schools of theology, right? right. And biblical studies for that matter. That's um, right. That's about right. the time you were there, that must've been really wild to be there. Yeah. And I, I mean, so I'm just like really grateful that it was like at Fuller where I read James Cone and, 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 you know, got just a taste test of, of different forms of Christian faith, what it, what it means to follow Jesus. I read a book, um, uh, by Ched Myers called Binding the Strongman, uh, mm. uh, the sociopolitical reading of Mark's gospel that really just kind of blew my mind, making these more holistic connections to politics and faith, to uh, to the personal and the political um, was was huge for me. And, and I became very compelled by that. Um, so so like I say in the book, I, I, I followed Jesus out of evangelicalism. Like I, I didn't like leave the faith. I didn't be just say, you know, screw Christianity. I'm done with this. This is, I, I, I followed narratives that were more compelling to me, like Anabaptism, like black Christian faith, like liberation theology coming up from Latin America and, and, and other sources that, that I really felt like captured the Jesus of the gospels in, in much more compelling ways. Uh, the the bibliog the bibliography alone in your book as i was thumbing through the end notes i like end notes and footnotes mm. some people find them distracting that's why people do end notes instead of footnotes i prefer footnotes but i because i like to look at them and read them which is why it takes me forever to read a book but yeah. you have read a lot you are very widely well read yeah. how yeah. how did that begin in seminary i mean obviously you were teaching high school so you were yeah. already, you were the athletic director? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, athletic director and teacher. Yeah. What did you teach? What subject? Uh, so I was, so I was teaching, um, government and economics at the time. Okay. Like all, all seniors, you know, semester course loved it. So like a ton of like current events. And that right. was again, also part of my process of, of like, like being right down the hallway from, from our guy, uh, Dr. Jim Corbett, like he was, he was feeding me articles. Yeah. Right. And, and, and even as a evangelical Republican reading them, um, skeptically, I started to get changed. Like he, he's, he's, he's a big part of my journey as well as, as well as other like dear friends, Charles Cha, a guy who I graduated with at Capo, who was, you know, graduated number one in his class, went to Berkeley, you know, we, he and I were just fundamentalist Christian tag team brothers, uh, while we went to Capo and we were trying to get people saved. Like, you know, we were, we were inviting friends, um, at lunch to like have conversations about eternal life. And, and, uh, you know, we had our campus crusade for Christ tracks. Um, but when Charles went to Berkeley, he, you know, he, he got social analysis and started to understand how the world works. And, um, and when he and I reconnected around that time, yeah, he just started feeding me stuff. So So, did did you have Dr. Corbett as a, as a student at Capitol? Like you, when I was a senior, uh, I was on pop rinse. 
Like ah. I, I would just, I just wrote, you know, like sports articles and I stuff still like have that. A, and, I still have a binder somewhere of the articles and the photos that I was the photo editor my senior year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he actually let me use his camera that he had as a journalist when he was in Beirut Man. and it had dents in there. And he's like, yeah, that was a, you know, he would tell me stories like that was a bullet. And I'm like, I didn't know what to believe it, but it was a cool story anyway. So, <laughs> and then we ended up upgrading and then the camera got, the, the, the paw prints camera actually got stolen from my car in our driveway at home. Wow. Somebody broke in and stole it. I stupidly left it in the car, but wow. anyway, so you had Dr. Corbett, but now yeah. for those of you listening, Dr. Corbett is an amazing teacher. Um, he will question you. He doesn't care whether you agree with him or not. Cause even if you agree with him, he will still, like yeah. get you to question your own perspectives so that you can see things from many different perspectives. Right. But one thing that Dr. Corbett is a devout atheist. Like he and I have had several conversations over the years. And even when I went back and told him I was going to go to seminary, he sort of shook his head and said, Oh, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? <laughs> and I said, no, you could have stopped. You couldn't have stopped this one. Sorry, Dr. Corbett. Although he was instrumental in my quest for, truth and knowledge. I mean, and I feel like my faith has been right. sort of coming out of this, what I was, so the, the church I went to was literally around the corner from capital, um, capital Christian. Mm. Um, and the little Presbyterian church just down the road, uh, from, from, from the school that you went to yeah. uh, pretty, I would suggest maybe theologically shallow, and I don't mean that derogatorily, but they weren't, you know, heavy Bible thumpers. They weren't doing intense Bible study. There were some people that were doing that, but by and large, it was a country club church right. um, and not a bad place to grow up. It was a great congregation, great people, uh, very formative, um, but it was definitely much more liberal, open um, to a certain degree, liberal in the sense of um, open to various thoughts. They weren't, they weren't, you know, hardcore, like, no, you either get in line or you get out kind of thing. Um but that quest for knowledge, that that desire to know more, I know has been part of my faith journey. And I've lived in various camps. The church I served in in Ohio was much more conservative than I was used to. That was the first church I served um, as an associate pastor. And then I went to a small rural church in Western New York in a village of 2,200 people and shrinking 1.2 square miles. Southern California suburban. I, my wife grew up in San Francisco and here we are surrounded by cornfields and great vineyards. <laughs> and yeah. I was a fish out of water from the get go. And, and being from California, I had two strikes to get me against me. I was not from Silver Creek, New York or Western New York for that matter. And I was from California. <laughs> so, and I had a college education and a master's degree, which was another strike against me for some folks. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. this, this anti-intellectual, this suspicion of anybody with a degree, uh, stuff really, really came out pretty strongly, mm -hmm. even though a lot of people in the village had degrees, um, they were definitely the minority, but it was this quest for knowledge and the, the, the asking the hard questions. And, and amazingly that little church went along with it and they kind of tolerated it for five, for five years. Um, mm -hmm. five years. Yeah. And then when I landed here, I found a church that was half the time rather than leading them out front the shepherd, you know, leading them out front saying, come on, it's okay. You'll be safe. You know, the church I'm serving now, half the time, the joke is I'm running behind them going, wait, I'm your pastor. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're out front, but they're definitely far left. And sometimes I think yeah. we are challenged on the left with, we do the right thing because it's the right thing. And yes, Christ compels us to do the right thing, but we aren't necessarily theologically sound in what we're doing and why we're doing it.
So it's kind of the, the opposite. Mm. We still do good stuff. Um, but we're still not asking questions as to, is this really what we should be doing? And I feel like the left and the right both avoid those questions because they get at the heart and the core of who we are. And it's scary. Yeah. Did you find that in the evangelical world? Does that, does that resonate with what your experience was? Yeah. I mean, in the evangelical world, um, and, and so like, this would be my reflection in the last six or seven years being in a lot of white, mainline liberal spaces uh and 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 the culture being very new to me in the evangelical world there is there is this sincere love for the bible right you know i I mean which is not a bad thing i mean evangelicals the best of evangelicalism uh is a is a rigorous study of the bible where they know the bible and they 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 know what they believe and and they're um, their political and personal convictions are, are kind of rooted in Bible. And, and my experience on the left in these mainline spaces are, as, as you're saying, not very theological, a, a lot of them, right? Um, there, there is this kind of being on the right side of history and having these kind of um, right political convictions and, and, and kind of looking side-eye um, at, at, the Republican party at the Trumpistas, uh, as, as being this, this is horrific. And, and this, you know, this is the American empire at its worst, but, but it not really being rooted in a whole lot of Jesus talk, uh, or a whole lot of Bible quoting. There is, there's kind of even a distancing from the Bible, even, even an embarrassment of the Bible at times that I experience on the left, uh, where, uh, where folks, I, I think even apologize for being Christian. And, and again, I think that's in a context where what's, what's happened in America, especially in the last 30 or 40 years to be a Christian is to be a white evangelical. It's mm. so powerful. The voice is so loud and, and quite frankly, obnoxious that there's, there is just this allergy to it where, where folks don't want to touch it. And this is what I'm seeing with a lot of younger post evangelicals who are, who are mostly millennials, um, they want nothing to do with Christian faith. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a big part of that is because the only Christian faith that they know is fundamentalist Christianity. Right? Which seems to be more anti than pro anything. My, yeah, my experience more, yeah. of evangelicalism is it's we're anti, 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 anti. I see. Um, yeah. They say they're pro-left, but really it's an anti-abortion position. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, but yet they're pro-death penalty, but really they're anti-crime and they want people to pay for their, you know. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. Jim Wallace uh, is famous for having said, and I'm sure he borrowed it from somebody else. You know, ha- you know, the, the, the right is pro-life, anti-abortion, but pro-capital punishment, pro-war, pro-corporations. Um, you know, anti-poverty in the sense of not curing it, but these people need to, you know, pull their boots up by their bootstraps and get back to work because they're just lazy. Right. Um, I hear that from evangelicals all the time. Not all of them. Obviously, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. The left is pro-choice, not necessarily pro-abortion. I know no one that is pro-abortion. <laughs> like, everybody should try one. <laughs> I, I don't hear that from anybody. Right. Yeah. Um, what's the what's the quote? It should be uh, safe, legal, and rare. 
you know, let's talk about the reasons why people get abortions. True. Right. Um, right. But they're so they're 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 uh, pro-choice, um, anti-capital punishment. Um, what does it mean? And and this is what Jim Wallace talks about. He says, what does it mean to have a consistent ethic of life? Hmm. Let's be pro-life in the sense of having a consistent ethic. Let's acknowledge on the left that abortion is painful for the mother and for the one making the decision as much for the child. Yeah. Um, does that mean it should be illegal? No, <laughs> there should be some parameters around it. Right. There, we need to be careful about how we apply that choice. And yeah. as a society, this is part of what we do. But right. let's also care for the mom. So um, the criticism of the right is that once the baby is born, it's you're on your own. Right. So they're pro-life for the fetus, but not necessarily for the poor child or pe- right. or the poor mom, single mom, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And it's, oh, you're on your own, no welfare, no, you know, don't be a welfare baby, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, whereas on, 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 on the left, um, I think sometimes uh, we talk a good game about wanting to create systems to help people, but then we do actually sometimes create um uh, dependence, codependence. We create right. systems that uh, enable. That's right. Rather than saying, let's work on the person. And I think uh, this is where I think the left and the right get it wrong in the sense that I feel like we're responding to symptoms and not the systemic issues that are causing those symptoms. Right. We're good at feeding the poor, but neither side wants to ask why the people are hungry and poor to begin with. Right. Um, you know, the right says, you know, immigrants, undocumented immigrants are criminals. Uh, you know, Trump in his famous, you know, speech announcing his presidential uh, candidacy, uh, they're drug dealers, they're rapists, you know, some of them might be good, you know, that kind of thing. On the left, they want to save everybody. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Does a country, does a nation have a right and have a responsibility to secure its borders? Yes, to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but I think the United States offers a different ethos to that as to what that looks like. So let's, rather than criminalizing immigrants let's ask why they're why they're coming and how much of the united states has had a hand in causing those massive migrations not just from central america we're talking north africa we're talking Mm -hmm. uh middle east we're talking yemen we're talking you know the united states has had a strong hand in creating some of these migration um yeah got our got our hands in everybody's cookie jar Right. So let's talk about that from a systemic standpoint. And then we get to Dr. King's speech at Riverside Church, where he is slammed for being too political. But this is exactly the thing that Jesus did. He was not afraid to address the powers that be, as Walter Wink would say. He was not afraid to say, this is a systemic issue. And you, Jewish leadership, are a part of this. And this isn't an anti-Jewish thing. This is about leadership, regardless of what flavor you are being in cahoots with and protecting even uh, the interests of an empire. And that's what Jesus seems to, that's what my understanding of the gospels and the prophets and the whole of scripture, the thread that runs through it is, is, is questioning those powers that seek to control and manipulate. Is that, and that's what I'm reading in your book is sort of this realization that, wait a minute, (laughs) there are things at work here that, we're not even aware of. And so many of us are blind to, I think on the left and the right, because we get so caught up in the, the ideologies. And I love the fact that you call Christianity. This is about a consciousness and a raised consciousness. And you even quote, I forget which author, um, about, you know, what does resurrection mean? 
and you put and she puts resurrection in terms of this raised consciousness right yeah. uh, which i think is really powerful and i think that will challenge christians on the left and the right don't ruin my easter <laughs> that's right yeah 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 yep yep that's right and i get yeah. in trouble when i preach an easter sermon at christmas but the two go hand in hand that's right. um, so yes. how Amen. do we as liberals and conservatives we are in a post january 6th capital invasion time right how do we talk to each other you've had a foot you were raised you you lived you you swam in the evangelical waters you have since gotten out of that pool or what it was the language you said i i flew the coop but i didn't leave the zoo or something yeah. like that was that one of the yeah. phrases yeah 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 still on the zoo how how do we and so often a zoo how do we talk to each other yeah. Sometimes I feel like we don't even speak the same language. Yeah, we don't. There's a lot of baggage with our language on, on whatever side you're on. How do we talk to each other? Yeah. Um, or what's been your experience with that? Cause I feel like you've, you've kind of been on this journey that has put you in a lot of very, I think, interesting places and in interesting conversations because of your background and because of the journey that you've been on. Yeah. I, I think, Eric, uh, it's a great question, and it's a question that just kind of continues to come up um, with, with a lot of us, especially in this moment. How do we reach across the aisle? How do we come to unity? How do we have a conversation? And it's such a mix. It's been such a mixed bag for me, especially in the last four years. There are some folks, old friends, old family members um, who I just, I, we can't have a conversation. Um, the level of mis misinformation is so high um, on the right that, like, we we can't even come to an agreement on 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 facts. Right. There there are dear friends that I have that are far more conservative than me, still in the evangelical camp, that um, that have disavowed Trumpism. Um, you know that uh, there 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 is still a quarter of white evangelicals that didn't vote for Trump. The, these are the conversations I'm interested in having um, uh, because, because there can be a conversation. There is a realization that this kind of fascism uh, is, is really destructive. Um, all that to say, I, I believe that like there has to be a starting point. There has to be like a common ground of where we have our conversation. And I think we, the, the, the litmus test for any sort of conversation about unity and finding common ground has to start at the margins. So, so I believe that like the conversation needs to be directed by black, brown and indigenous peoples. So, so yes, let's have a, let's, let's unify and, and let's, let's have for once in our 500 year history, let's listen to these voices and come to an understanding where we're black brown and indigenous people um, are going to be protected are given dignity are given a voice are given a place at the table and um and and are, are taken care of in the last month i've spent a ton of time uh researching police and prisons um, I'm fascinated by the abolitionist movement, the, the, the contemporary abolitionist movement and what these abolitionists 
voices are saying, Angela Davis, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and others, um, um, largely led by Black folks, Black women. What they're saying is, is that um, that can we imagine a world without police and prisons? Right. Uh, and when we start to have that conversation, we can have an imagination that gets to um, a real pro-life platform, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where, where everybody is housed, uh, everybody has health insurance, everybody has access to nutritious food and water. But that's um, communism and socialism. Right. It's not right. American. Right. And, and, and that needs to be the conversation. Right. But, but here, but here's but, what and I, I hear that on the left and the right. Right. That's, That's right. American. That's right. And so, so for me, the, the conversation around p- police prisons and private uh, health insurance, that is the litmus test for whiteness. And, and what I mean by that is, is that, that what I continue to experience over and over and over again on the left with white liberals is, is that they will not have that conversation. The idea of abolishing police prisons and private health insurance is a threat to their way of life. So, so on both sides. That's right. That's right. I mean, of course, the right's not going to have that conversation. And, and this, I mean, this gets back to this, this other thing that I think white communities, liberal white communities are starting to come around to the idea of white privilege and white fragility. Um, they're starting to understand how, you know, just because they had to work to get through things doesn't mean they weren't privileged. Right. That they, they started that, you know, it's that, it, what's that? There's a video on YouTube that has everybody on the same line. And then they start saying, if you've ever had, right. you know, both your parents are still married, yeah. take two steps forward. Um, you yeah. know, your parents paid for your college education, take a step forward. And some of the white people are hanging back, but then they start creeping up too. When they start mentioning, you know, have you ever been without a job? And many of them, you know, when you were searching and many of them do step forward, not to say that some white people, you know, the white people don't get jobs or white, every white person gets a job, but, but the, the, the role of privilege starts to come out. It's not just an economic thing. It, it, it does become a race thing. Uh, and, and, you know, these, these, uh, uh, brown people of color and indigenous folks end up staying much closer to that that line they never get ahead and i think we're starting to come around to be able to have that conversation and it is hard to acknowledge that and in order to change it we have to be willing to speak against it and i've heard this from from black colleagues as well it's you know racism is a white issue we just happen to be suffering from it that's what they say the black people and the people of color and the indigenous folks, they're the ones that are suffering because of it. But this is a white issue. Right. Do you have a response to that? Yeah. And I, and I would, and I would add uh, to that. One of my mentors, Ruby sales, uh, she's a, a veteran of the civil rights movement. Um, Ruby has been instrumental for me in re-narrating that white people are suffering immensely from white supremacy. Uh, it, this is a spiritual condition. Uh, we, we are spiritually bereft. We are emotionally bereft as a result of white supremacy, as a result of privilege, um, as a, as a result of, of all these supremacy stories that we've just taken in for so long. Uh, we, we have become spiritually weak. Uh, we are people that are addicted. We have epidemics of abuse, addiction, loneliness, depression, 
all of these things, I find the root in white supremacy. Of course, capitalism plays plays into it as well. Uh, of course, patriarchy plays into it as well. All these things are working together. But but that, I mean, to, to be able to see that that black, brown, and indigenous folks are suffering economically, politically, socially as a result of white supremacy is really important. But I think it's also important to just say you and I are malformed spiritually as a result of living, just breathing in this white supremacist error all the time, everywhere we go. I, I think it came out of South Africa the, the, um, as apartheid, the apartheid government fell. Um, I think it was Nelson Mandela, I believe, was saying that, you know, one of the things that we need to make sure we do is we do not demonize those who reinforce the system yeah. from the top. And yeah. we, you know, in order for reconciliation to truly happen, and they're still in the process of reconciliation, how many decades later, we cannot demonize those because they were victims of the system too, in a different way. Right. How much, um, oppress being being a part of the uh the privilege system the oppressors can be just as detrimental to one's heart one's soul one's mind one's yeah. perspective of the world yeah uh, so yeah that's becoming that's becoming more uh common to understand uh to understand that yeah um, yeah but that's new yeah. Walter, I think yeah. Walter Wink also talks about it in his books about the powers that be about the That's suffering right. of the oppressors, which right. seems yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. And Wink's spirituality was integral. Uh, it, it was it was very Jungian, which is which is very indigenous. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it very compelling. It's it's what Dr. King wrote from the Birmingham jail. Right. 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 Uh, we're, Powerful we're caught, letter. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Right. Um, so he's making this appeal to white moderate pastors, white liberal pastors. Um, and, and he's saying that, you know, um, I, I can't be free until you're free and vice versa. Um, mm. whatever affects one directly Excellent. affects everybody else indirectly. And that's, and that's what we're, we're all, we're all entangled. We're all in this web. And so, so anytime there's violence, anytime there's harm, anytime there's uh, oppressive policies, it's, it's going to shape us uh, in ways that are counterfeit. And it, uh, it affects everyone in the system. That's right. Yeah. I, I've also heard it said that uh, a community can only be as healthy as its least healthy, healthy person. Mm. Um, my love is only as strong as the person that I love the least. Wow. Um, these are phrases that I've heard and it's this concept of, you know, we are in this together and, and American culture does not lend itself to that. We're so hyper individualistic That's right. that it, it, it's an illness. It truly. Yeah, that's right. It, but it, man, it's hard to shake. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Orange County, same as you having things is like, it's part of my identity. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm slumming it by my family standards because, you know, I'm a pastor and I don't earn a ton of money and I live in Phoenix or, you know, Chandler, Arizona. Uh, right. You know, I, I you know, <laughs> we're slumming it by California standards, yeah. but it's it's hard to shake that. The yeah. I want it. Therefore, I'm going to buy an Amazon, of course, just makes it worse, but it's yeah. way too convenient. So yeah. what are you doing? You, you've you made you and your you and your wife were on this journey and <clears throat> you kind of went on. It sounds like you went on this journey together and you've kind of ended up in a pretty similar space. 
what are you doing with your life? It seems like you've made some pretty significant life decisions in response to this, everything that you've been through and learned and explored. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and in 2013, Lindsay and I, um, I, you know, I was still teaching, um, full time had the summer off. And so we took a 75 day road trip all over North America to visit alternative Christian communities, Catholic worker houses, uh, progressive and radical Christian communities in different places. Um, we went to we went to Jonah House in Baltimore. You know these these radical nuns who you know sneak onto military bases and um, and have Eucharist and uh, you know church services and get arrested. And so so on that trip, we went to Detroit, Michigan for forty eight hours and um, and just met these dear uh, mentors and friends now and uh, pastors, uh, theology professors folks living in community, um, you know, on blocks and, 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 uh, and Detroit at the time was going under emergency management in the state of Michigan, the governor can appoint an emergency manager over a city. And that's what was going on in Detroit. That's what happened in Flint when they changed the water source and poisoned the water of uh, an entire city. Um, and emergency management is what has happened to every black majority city in, in Michigan. Um, and so, uh, basically a dictator takes over a city and, uh, and, and gets to call the shots and puts it under bankruptcy. And, um, and so we, we, we went on that trip in 2013 to discern a move because we, we knew for our Christian discipleship, we, we needed a move. We needed to move out of suburbia. We, we needed to apprentice ourselves, uh, to, to folks. And so we moved to Detroit in 2014. And, and since 2014, we've just been raising, um, uh, financial support. Uh, Lindsay and I don't have children. We don't have debt. Um, we're, we're fortunate, um, to be in a situation where we can live on a lot less. And so, um, today we're raising support. We have our own nonprofit called Cardia Kaiomene, um, which, uh, Greek words that, that mean burning hearts that came, that comes from the, uh, the 24th chapter of Luke on the road to Emmaus when the disciples are hearts are burning when they, when they're walking with both the resurrected Jesus. Um, and, and so Lindsay and I call our work soul accompaniment. Um, we're kind of free agent pastors. Uh, Lindsay's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And, um, and so we do a lot of our work with post evangelical folks, mm-hmm. younger folks, um, uh, who, uh, uh, spiritual political journey, and, um, and so right now we're living tri-locationally, uh, we live in, we live in central Oregon. That's kind of where our stuff is, but, um, Detroit is still a huge part of our heart. Um, so we'll spend about three or four months in Detroit this year. And then in Southern California, down in Orange County, we'll, we'll spend uh, two or three months down there with, with, uh, with folks doing various things. Um, are you still in contact with folks from your more conservative evangelical days? A lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A lot of them. Yeah. A lot of them. Have like the, the, the other friends. people that you started the church with. Yeah. Um, a few, okay. a few. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's distance and, you know, we see the world differently and, um, and, and it's, it's been 15 years since that happened. Um, since, since, you know, we started to go to seminary and, and we're no longer part of that church, but yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating to see where where folks have gone since then. 
Um, now you you still speak some of that evangelical speak. I, I I hear it in your book. I hear it when we've talked. Um, how are you received in when you go into more progressive white communities? How are yeah. you? How do you feel like you're received? Mm, um, I I think a mixed bag. Yeah, it's a great question, Eric. How am I received? Um, one of the things I, I consistently say is is that I'm uh, that Lindsay and I are too radical politically for most Christians, hmm. and we're too Christian for most radicals. So, <laughs> so like, like, like in the organizing space, like, yep. like it's kind of bizarre. We're Christians. Like, yeah. like what are the, what are the white Christians doing here? Right. Like that's, that, that doesn't, that just doesn't fit. But in progressive Christian spaces, like, like to bring up racism, uh, to bring up a critique of capitalism, like mm. that's also jarring. Um, we find that most white progressive Christians are not interested in that conversation. It's, wow. it's uncomfortable. Um, and they would, they would rather stick with other important things. Um, like the, the issues around sexuality issues around gender. Um, I mean, that's, we want to have those conversations too, but it sticks there. Um, and that's again, like, I, you know, I got to keep coming back to Dr. King it's, it's why, like when he names racism, materialism, and militarism, like that's profound. Like that's what we experience all the time in, in, in spaces on the left. They folks don't want to deal with that. You know, I mean, the first, the first month we were, we, when we moved to Bend, Oregon back in, um, in 2018 or 2019, I, I just, like I took the, the first month and just visited churches. So I, you know, I went to the mega church. I went to the Pentecostal church. I went to the Presbyterian church. Um, and I rolled into the United Methodist church and folks had told me, yeah, it's one of the more liberal churches in town. Well, when, when I rolled in there, it was Memorial day, uh, weekend. And the, the slides that were coming up were, were jarring for me. I mean, this is, we just got, you know, we just moved from Detroit being in radical Christian spaces and, and there's slides that, that are coming up, um, that, you know, before the gospel reading where the Bible is wrapped in an American flag and then it's time to, to pray. And there's a bald Eagle pray, bowing to the cross with the American flag wrapped around it. So, so for me, like, there's nothing Christian about that. Like I, no. that, that, I, that, that's, that's. And they were the most liberal church in Ben? One of the more liberal churches, right? I mean, wow. this is a, this is a liberal church in, in central Oregon. Um, but, but again, like there's that, but then there's, a, there's also just this like deep, like patriotism connection to, you know, American exceptionalism that like is all over the political spectrum. So it's those, you know those forces that, that I think we run into that um, were not really received very well. Yeah. So since you wrote this book and, or it was published in 2018, um, what have you been doing since 2018? Have you been writing other than, I know you, you said you're writing and helping co-edit on radicaldiscipleship.net. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the book project I'm working on um right now is, um, is, a, is, is kind of a post evangelical biblical reading strategy. Um, okay. the, the, the temporary, the tentative title is conspiracy, 
Um, uh, and it's when I, after the book came out, I, I, I got to like, just drive around and road trip and, and tour around with different communities and do book readings. And, and I got to preach at different places and have conversations about the book. But one of the things that kept coming up in, in these conversations with post evangelicals was around the Bible. Like, Mm. like, what do I do with this? Um, and I, I mean, people all over the place talking about PTSD, you know, these, these, these traumatic biblical readings for them, like, how do you piece it back together? Like these, these, these things are just ingrained. And so the book project I'm working on is, is largely, um, taking, taking cues from the black church, um, uh, black Christians for 400 years have read the Bible much differently than white Christians. And that seems to have been really influential. You, you mentioned that a number of times in your book how yeah. how much you're you're trying to listen to the black voices the black church in particular right. and the way they read scripture and That's black right. churches tend to be much more i would suggest conservative and evangelical in their in the way right. that they do things but yet their but their theology is not the same as the white evangelical conservative yeah. And, it, and again, it's like, you know, there's not just one black church, as you're pointing out, right. that there are there are conservative and, and, uh, and progressive expressions of that. But again, I would say in my own experience and my research, um, the racism, the materialism, the militarism, there is a stark difference between white and black churches. Um, there, there is a naming of, of, of those principalities in ways and the black church, um, from the, from the days of slavery on, um, I mean, Howard Thurman, uh, who is a hero of mine wrote, uh, wrote a book called Jesus and the disinherited. He, he has this great quote where he, he says that, uh, the enslaved redeemed a religion that their masters profaned in their midst. And to me, that's, that's the, that's the key. That um, the black Christianity has redeemed a religion that white Christians have profaned hmm. uh, for 500 years in, in the United States. Um, and uh, Cornel West calls the black experience the leaven in the loaf. It's um, it, it, it's it's what makes this thing rise. And there's so much beauty and brilliance and uh, and and prophetic wisdom uh, in the in the black church, and it's just untapped. For white folks like we we just don't know we don't know where to go with it um but uh but over and over and over again i, I just continue to be moved and transformed uh, by by that uh, tradition yeah. what so one of the things i like to ask people that come on the brewcast is what are you reading these days yeah. Um, so I was, I was just telling you, you know, I'm, I'm reading all this stuff on prisons and, um, and police. Um, okay. Anything I read, particular? I read um, uh, Michael Denzel Smith's book, um, and I forget the title of it right now. It's it's on my bedside right now, but he just came out with it this year. is really good. Um, I just got done with a book uh, by Jesmyn Ward oh, called oh. Men We Reaped. Um, say, and say that one more time. Men We Reaped is the name Men of the we book. We Reaped. Yeah, just Jasmine Ward is um, a black woman from uh, Mississippi. She's a brilliant author, and this is like her memoir. Um, Jasmine Ward is is you know our, our age. She's in her mid forties, uh, but she this book is gut wrenching. It's powerful. She's she's writing about these men and her and her life, 
young men who who died early um and and she gets into some of the forces of of why this is happening to black men um and uh, it's it's really powerful eddie gloud's book um it's called begin again uh is the best book that i've read in a long time uh eddie gloud is the uh a professor of african-american studies at princeton um and and gloud um the book came out i think in september of this last year and the books about james baldwin who's a who's just this really important i think figure uh who's often overlooked in the civil rights movement yes. um but he just he's he he reads it for this moment um uh, like like this is why baldwin matters for us today and Gloud's he he hits on this concept of what that he calls the lie um, and he he says, you know, the the lie um, that's rooted in what he calls the value gap. Like there is this lie of American exceptionalism that um, that this is the greatest country in the history of the world, and that we're basically perfect, and we've got this democracy. Um, but there are all these myths and legends that uh, that run the whole thing, and so it's it's white America's failure to name the lie. It keeps the whole thing going. Uh, if we can't name the lie, if we can't name all these counterfeit ideologies that run this thing, then we're going to keep going. So where does the church and, you know, from my perspective, the liberal progressive church, but where does the church and the Christian church fit into that kind of work? What, what, what does the church need to be doing right now to be speaking to those, those truths as you understand them? Yeah. Um, I, I think name them. Um, I, I think uh, make our, our whole idea of faith and witness about um, naming those things. And, and I think we obviously, and I mean, as you know, I mean, I mean, my own life is a testament to like, okay, I got to take a couple steps back here um, because I grew up with all these lies. And so I, I need to learn like what's going on here? Like, mm -hmm. like what is really happening? Like how is white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy, like just deforming, uh, our souls. Um, and so, so like when we're having these conversations, like, what do we do? Like, how do we do? I mean, I feel like this is all soul work. Mm -hmm. I think, I think so much of it is just like study, connecting it to our own lives, confession, repentance, um, grief, like learning how to grieve these things and, and, uh, and, and stare them in the face. And, um, and, and again, like, I, I think it starts with listening to voices of black, brown and, and indigenous people because our, our geography, our, our, our socioeconomic structures have segregated us so that we don't see any of it. We're, we're just blinded by it. Um, right. Like Dr. King calls it conscientious blindness. Hmm. White America has been blinded. Like we don't want to see it. Right. I mean, it's like, I always come back to like that, that documentary food Inc that made me a vegetarian. Like you watch that documentary. Same like, thing. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I can't, I can't eat animals anymore. Like, but, but there is this thing in white America where we just say, Oh no, I don't want to see that. I'm, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, yeah. 
I don't want to see that. And that's how it is. Like, that's how it is with race. That's how it is with food. That's how it is with the military. Um, it's like, yeah, if we see those things, then we have to change. Yeah. And we, and, and we realize we're complicit and we fear change. Yeah. 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 So how can so people support you? You and it, Lindsay, right? Is that your wife's name? Yeah. We come yeah. your prayers. That's how, how for can, sure. How can people support you and Lindsay and the work you're doing? You said you guys are raising money through, what was the name of it again? Yeah. It's Cardia Kaiomene. It's the, you know, the most bizarre name to try to pronounce. Yeah. It's a blog spot. It's Cardia Kaiomene dot blog spot. Um, okay. And, and we're just, I mean, we're passionate about connecting with folks. So, so reach out, email me, Tommy at Gmail. Um, let's have a conversation. It's, uh, you know, it's what keeps me up at night and gets me out of bed in the morning. And, um, it's what life's about. Awesome. Uh, friends, you can support Tommy and his wife, Lindsay at, uh, car date, cardia, K O M E N E K R D I A K A I O M E N E dot blogspot dot com. And Your you Greek might, is phenomenal. Eric. You might have to, you might have to rewind that to get it written down a few times, but I'll also have it in the, in the podcast notes. So you should be able to get it down below and you're still working, uh, doing stuff at radical discipleship.net, right? That's right. Yeah. Self-pumping, uh, you, you, you co-edit that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we're connected with G's magazine. Um, oh, and G's magazine. That was the other one. Yeah. Yeah. My, my partner in crime, Lydia Wiley Kellerman, who's in Detroit is the, the executive editor of G's magazine. So and that's G E G E E Z, right? Yeah. Magazine. Nice. Yeah. They're, they're just doing beautiful work. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. Uh, it's great to talk to you. It's great to learn your story. Uh, it's been fantastic reading your book. I thank you for your work, your ministry, um, your life, what you do, and the word that you bring into the world. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Eric. It, uh, yeah, I'm deeply grateful to Dr. Corbett for connecting yeah, us. Right? Yeah, he's the one that mentioned you, actually. He's like, yeah. all right. He says, I have all these Christians around me. What's going on? <laughs> I loved as we, it. As we, as he we says, say, he says, he says, you're my, you're his new hero. Yeah, as we used to say in the evangelical world, it's a God thing, Doctor. It's Corbin. a God thing. Yeah, yeah. Look out, we're coming after you. Hey, everybody! Thanks for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Be of good courage and know that you are loved. You can find the Brewcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe. Send your comments and questions to eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com. Find the Faith and Coffee blog and older episodes of the Brewcast at faithandcoffee.com. Subscribe and receive email updates directly in your inbox. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily, nor are they intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC in Chandler, Arizona. 